iTunes presents Meet the Filmmaker at the Tribeca Film Festival. Ladies and gentlemen, good afternoon and welcome to the Apple Store Soho. Join us as we present Meet the Filmmaker, Connor McPherson. Here the Tony Award-nominated playwright discusses Tribeca's selection, The Eclipse. One of Ireland's most celebrated living playwrights, McPherson wrote and directed the new film, which stars Aidan Quinn, Kieran Hines, and Ibn Hajel. Set amidst the chaos of an international literary festival, The Eclipse offers an exquisite and life-affirming drama about the redemptive quality of love. Moderating uh, today's special event is our good friend Dave Schwartz from the Museum of Moving Image here in New York City. Uh, at this time, please join me in welcoming, welcoming today's guest, Connor McPherson, and our moderator, Dave Schwartz. Okay, the handsome redheaded Irish-looking fellow is Connor McPherson, and he's... Um, an incredibly talented, first of all, he's an amazingly talented playwright. I'm sure a lot of you have seen his plays on Broadway, including uh, The Shining City, Shining City and The Seafarer and The Wear, agree with um, Ben Brantley of the New York Times, who called him perhaps the greatest living playwright. And um, he's also an incredibly talented film director. He's actually directed three films. He wrote a screenplay for a comedy, sort of gangster comedy, called I Went Down, and um, directed three films. Um, including the actors and the, um, sorry, the um, uh, Saltwater, which was an adaptation of a play. Um, and, then, and then in this festival is The Eclipse, which is um, a really beautiful film. It's for one thing a beautifully directed um, film and an incredible um, sort of, well, I'm, but I'm not gonna describe it. I was just about to launch into, into a description, but um, why don't you tell us what it's about? Tell us what The Eclipse is about. And this is a film that you wrote and directed. Yeah, uh, The Eclipse is set in a town in Ireland called Cove. And um, it's set against the backdrop of a literary festival. And it's based on a short story by a friend of mine called Billy Roach, who's also a playwright. And uh, it's about a teacher, a woodwork teacher, who volunteers as a volunteer uh, to help uh, with the literary festival. And he's assigned this writer, played by Ibn Hyla, uh, who he has to drive around uh, the town. And uh, he's been having these strange supernatural experiences. And she writes g books about ghosts and so forth. He's a widower and he's bringing up two kids. And he's unable to talk about these strange things that have been happening to him, which are quite terrifying. And uh, he feels that maybe he can talk to her uh, because she writes about this stuff. But it's complicated because the only reason she's come to this festival is that she's been inveigled to come there by um, Aidan Quinn's character, who is a famous writer whose books would be all over the airport when you're going through. And uh, he's trying to reignite an affair with her. So the film really has a love triangle and a, it's also kind of a, a ghost story. So it's, and it's a love story. So it's like a supernatural love story. And we shot it um, last September and October. Uh, just finished it really very recently, and uh, it's fantastic to be here as part of the Tribeca Film Festival. We've had two screenings, and um, it's just been fantastic. Uh, and, it, and it was the world premiere. I mean, this is the first the first showings of the film. Yeah, it's just amazing for us to be here showing it for the first time. It's. Um, could you t talk a bit about? Um, 
this is, I'm going to launch into sort of a big question, but you, you have ghosts in a number of your works, both your you know, plays, and, and you're interested in the idea of ghosts, but your, your work is uh, primarily, I, I guess I would say, psychological. Could you talk a bit about how this um, theme, like what it interests you about, about ghosts in your work? Well, I find life and the natural world to be supernatural. I don't see any divide between reality and um, the imagination, really. What we perceive is what we call reality, but we only have five physical senses, and we are just happen to be animals who are conscious, but we don't know why the universe is here. We don't know why we're here. We don't know why we're conscious and aware of it. We're aware that we're alive, and we're aware that we will die, and it's a quite a strange predicament. And for me, it just seems so, um, as part of the cosmos, we are citizens of the whole mystery, but it is a mystery we're in total ignorance of, really. And so for me, it's more, it seems kind of more likely that we will see more than what's real. We dream, that seems real when we're, when we're, when we're dreaming. And, um, you know, I sort of always kind of want to see a ghost. I always want to see <laughs> into the future or into the past. For me, I feel, strangely, perhaps my life is somewhat impoverished because I'm sort of stuck in the real world. <laughs> and, it's, and it strikes me that one of the great things about film, or, or, and I guess this is true in theater also, in theater, is that you can just have a ghost, you can have a supernatural occurrence happen, and you don't really need to explain it. I mean, it, you, you can show it, and, there's a, and there can be ambiguity, and the audience can figure out... Well, I think that audiences just instinctively understand that when something supernatural is happening, maybe it's real, maybe it's coming from within the character who's experiencing it, because sometimes when we have unfinished business in our own psyche, it seems to perhaps be projected onto the world, and nobody might know how you feel. You could be feeling absolutely terrible, and you could be feeling very terrified or paranoid or see things that you, you, know, you can't explain, yet you have to appear normal. And so for me, that always seems to be like a great dramatic metaphor for how we just cope with being alive and pretending we kind of know what's going on, you know. Yeah. Um, so it's always, uh, ever since I was a child, I was always drawn to ghosts, vampires, zombies, <laughs> dawn of the dead, night of the living dead, anything like that. I was always like, whoa, 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 give me more of this, <laughs> give me more of this. Because to me, that's like, that's where I want to be. And in, in another way, too, it's perhaps a search for God because... I suppose the fear of mortality, in some way, we're longing that there is something beyond which will take care of us um, in our final lonely time on this earth or whatever. You know, we want to be taken back to the bosom of mother, mother whatever created us, you know. And yeah. uh, so I suppose all of those things get swept up into my work, but I always try to put them in the ordinary, mundane world. Yeah. But somehow, in the work that I do normally, somehow a hole gets poked in that, usually through extreme stress in people's lives. And it becomes a great focus for that. And then how either they come to terms with it or don't, and either resolve their sense of fear or, or don't, I suppose. Yeah. Now this material, you um, have been working very successfully in theater and with plays and in the West End and on Broadway. Um, you waited, you've made a number of films, but you, took some time before you launched into this. So could you talk about why you decided this material and the eclipse you wanted to treat as a film and, and why you like, sort of waited till this point? I'm, I was involved with some films when I was younger. Um, back in my 20s, I wrote 
a screenplay and then I got a chance to direct a film and then I got a chance to direct another one. But the whole film world and the film business and show business itself is a very confusing um, place to be. And sometimes you're going to... I mean, look, if anyone gets the opportunity to direct a film, you're probably going to just take that opportunity. But is it the right thing for you to do? Well, that's another question. And um, I think I sort of got a little bit lost in the, okay, this is, hey, we're going to make a film, it's great. <laughs> but really, it's not fulfilling unless it's something that's really coming from your soul. And um, so after the last film I made before the eclipse, I purposely just decided I wasn't going to get involved in films and that um, I just wanted to, so I just worked in the theater and just kept working there, which I found very fulfilling because I had total control. And then I was sent a short story by Billy Roach, which was based around this literary festival and about this teacher. And um, in the story, he's, he's married and his wife is there and he has children and he becomes mm. obsessed with this writer who becomes the sort of locus for all his unresolved whatever. And uh, I w asked my wife to read the screenplay and she said to me, you know, you've got to kill this guy's wife. And <laughs> I was like, well, why? And she was like, because I tell you, women won't like this guy if he's married and he's obsessed with some other woman, you know, and if he's, <laughs> if he's, not, if he's not honest about it, you know. And I was like, okay, so, and when, we, when, I, when I did that with a stroke of the pen um, and he became a widower, suddenly it was like, whoa, he's in all this pain and he needs to find love and maybe can he get it, but also as well, he can be haunted. Terrific, okay, now I know where I'm going with this. So it right. was a real um, mixture of two writers, you know, coming together. Happily, myself and Billy are still friends. He didn't mind where we were going with it. He's in the film, he's, yeah. he's good in it. And um, so that was sort of how it, it sort and of And you had dealt with the idea of the widower in, I mean, Shining City. There's, yeah, so there's something of Shining City in this film. It's yeah. not an adaptation of Shining City, but there's something of that, of the unresolved feelings of loss and of guilt, which have to somehow he, he has to come to grips with through terrifying supernatural experiences, which are then uh, assuaged when he is able to get the opportunity to find love. Uh, one of the things that's very striking about the film is it's an incredibly um, visual movie. First of all, you film in a um, you know, stunning area of, uh, of Southern Ireland, and, it, and um, you tell a lot of the story through your images, and there's not a tremendous amount of dialogue. I guess I kind of went in thinking, well, a playwright has written this, there's going to be a lot of talking, but you seem to like working with, with very spare dialogue. Oh, God, absolutely. See, the thing is, in the theatre, everything has to be done with words. I mean, you have to explain everything to everybody, because you can't just cut to the, you know, <laughs> you, you know so it's, it was, it's like, in a film, an example I would use is that if someone is just sitting looking at some photographs of someone that they miss and you're playing sad music, everybody gets it. Nothing needs to be said. You can't do that in the theater. Someone's got to go, you know, the other night I found some photographs and I was <laughs> looking through them. And, you know, and, and it's only as good as the writing and the performance. But yeah. if you can convey it visually and use music, it's a tremendous luxury. And I purposefully... Um, kept the script very, very short. I mean, I'd worked on films before where mm. the script was like 137 pages and you got to shoot the whole thing and you're like, oh my God, how are we going to get through all this? Well, let's just shoot it all and we'll edit it down when we're, you know. But with this one, I purposefully kept, I did about 20 drafts and I kept the script getting smaller and smaller and smaller till it was only about 65 pages because mm. I knew then I c it would allow time for the actors and the camera work and just the atmosphere to breathe. 
and uh, that was what I wanted to do. So big visual influences on the film for me were Stanley Kubrick oh, okay. and um, William Friedkin's The Exorcist and Roman Polanski's films, where they, as directors, they don't cut very much, and it just they play a lot of scenes out in just one, they just pick the right lens and they just let it all play out with tremendous integrity and depth, which is what I was trying to go for. I'm not saying my film is as good as anything they've made, but uh, as references for me, they were tremendously helpful. Yeah, so there are scenes that can be like four minutes long, you know, which in a film, it's pretty unusual. Um, the scene at the bar, I think. Um, yeah, it's, um, and it's great for actors to be able to do that too, because they can really get right yeah. into it, you know, so um, yeah, it's, it's lovely. I love working that way. It's because it's different for me. And you have a great cast. I mean, Kieran Hines, um, could you talk about putting the cast together? It's one of Aidan Quinn's um, sort of juiciest roles in a long time, this uh, frustrated Aiden, writer. He, he's amazing in it. Like, I didn't even realize how comedic he could be. Yeah. And uh, he plays sort of an unlikable character, but somehow he makes us sympathize with him, which is, which is great. Yeah. Um, Kieran Hines is an amazing Irish actor who I worked with in the theater and uh, who just has an amazing soulful presence which I knew just whenever I see him in films, he's always playing somebody's friend or, you know, he's never the, the main guy. But I knew that if I could just get him in every scene yeah. that the film would have real, you know, you just film him shaving and it's kind of interesting. You know, it's, uh, yeah. he's uh, incapable of not being intriguing somehow. Eben Hyla, I found through a casting agent in London, Gail Stevens, she said, she rang me up one day, I, needed s I wanted to find an actress who just was real natural, different, not just, you know, the, you know, I wanted to get something that was really, um, I suppose, credible. And she sent me this, Eben had walked into her office one day, and Gail said, just sit down there, I'm going to put you on my little camera on my computer. And she emailed it to me, and I opened up this email, and just this little box came up about this big, and there's this lady there, Eben, and she just goes, hi, I'm Eben, this is the front, this is the right side, this is the left side, <laughs> and this is the back. I just thought, that's her. I can, I can really work with someone who's that open. Like, yeah. And uh, she came to Dublin, and we just had lunch, and I just knew she was right. She's a great earthy laugh and a great voice. She's so open and natural. And then Aidan Quinn was actually, uh, again, my wife, who has played a big role in this film, um, not in the film, but in its development, she suggested um, Aidan Quinn for the role of Nicholas Holden. And it was a great, great choice. I was racking my brains, and uh, we sent it to him, and he came back very quickly saying he'd like to do it. And I was like, oh, he really wants to do this part. I said, make sure he knows it's that part and not Kieran Hines' part. And he said, of course he knows. <laughs> I said, no, make sure, make sure. And they did, and he was like, of course I know, what are you, you know, and please, don't insult right. my intelligence. And, uh, <laughs> you know, he's fantastic. And, well, uh, he's kind of despicable. He's, he's a star. He, he, he shows up at this literary festival as, you know, this writer who thinks, every, he has some line, like, everybody there is sort of a nitwit, um, yeah, you know, yeah, and, yeah. and so he, he's very full of himself. So it helps that you have kind of a movie star playing that. I know, yeah. he's great, and that he's able to send himself up so well. <laughs> and also, I think Aiden, you know, over the years in films like Legends of the Fall and Desperately Seeking Susan, he's always this beautiful romantic lead with those penetrating blue eyes, you know. And now he's a little older and that the little, you know, so he, he has that sense, I suppose, of someone who was young and beautiful and gorgeous, but is just feeling the hand of mortality just coming on his shoulder and it's kind of sending him into a little crisis, you know, and yeah. uh, he does it beautifully. And what's great, I think, about Eben Yale is um, her 
character and the performance, she, she, she's at the center of this triangle. So both of these men need her for something. Aidan Quinn just needs her. I mean, I guess you'd call it a midlife crisis or something. Um, and she, but she, you have to sort of believe that she's incredibly beautiful and, and that she can also sympathize with Kiaren Hines' character, who is this sort of, you know, he's a driver, basically, a volunteer during the festival. And somehow there has to be a connection there. Yeah. Um, and you, you make it, or, and she and you as a director make that believable. Well, it's, a, it's, it's down to them, really, because, like, when I'm directing actors, I will always change the script to suit who they are as people mm. because where they are comfortable... In, within what they're doing, that's where it feels real, and that's where the chemistry is, and they really had it. And anything they wanted to do, anything we needed to, I would always change or cut things or add things, whatever they wanted, because it, it just always let them go right into a place where they were really comfortable, and the chemistry just really worked, you know, and they both are very likable, and we kind of want them to be together, and, uh, but that's not something, a all I can do is cast it, I, I can, and then help them, but they have to do it, it's their, wonderful mysterious ability as actors to be credible and I don't know what it is that actors actually have that's so believable how is it that one person can say something and we don't really buy it we don't think they're great another person says it and we're just like wow what an amazing performance I think it's it's a real gift and you can train and you can develop your gift but great actors just have that amazing mystical depth that draws us into them and um, they, they have it and is, is there, since you've also directed um, on stage, is there something about working with the camera that you find that some actors just can allow the camera to capture something? Yeah, well, I did a film some years ago with Michael Caine, and he was full of, um, full of great advice about the camera. And he said, you know, you know, you go, the camera can read your mind, you know? And he's, he was so right that if the actor is not thinking the right thought... It doesn't work, you know. It's it's kind of very strange that you know, and um, working on state, working directing a play, you're like a coach for a sports team. You're basically trying to get the team ready for the big game, you know. And it's all about their confidence. It's about their fitness. It's about their understanding of each other and how they're going to play together. And you're building and building and building them to have this tremendous morale to go out and literally sort of attack the audience with the work. In a film. You get a little bit more circumspect that because sometimes you can just catch a little moment, even by accident, and you have it forever. Yeah. So it's a very different thing. And also with lenses, I mean, when you're watching theater, it's a wide angle lens. It's usually like a, it feels like a 24 mil or 20 mil lens. It's wide, and the characters are like quite small. And they're sort of talking like this, and you're sort <laughs> of trying to tune into them. You know, it's difficult, yeah. and you really got to work. But when you can get a long lens on a, onto somebody, and they're just they really don't have to say very much or do very much if they're a really good actor and it's just working. And sometimes I would just cut the dialogue. I'd say, listen, we don't need any of this. What you're doing is just great, you know. So were you doing more um, pairing away of dialogue as you were directing this than, than say, adding? Or? I always work that way. I always am rewriting and doing it while we're shooting, while we're cutting. Because only when you see it, only when you have them in the location, in the costumes, doing it, do you see what you have and what you could have and potentially what's there that you didn't even think of. And also the things that you did that you thought were going to be great, that's like, hmm. well, we need something else, you know. <laughs> so, yeah, I would work in a very open way. I mean, sometimes I would be very strict and there's something that I want and I'd make sure I have it, but uh, mostly I would try to encourage the actors to bring from themselves what they, what it means to them. Once we have that, we're okay. Mm. 
do you um, want to move back and forth between film and theater? Now that you've had a, a very good taste of both, how do you see yourself moving, moving forward? I think now that I've found a way of making films that suits me, you know, which is that it takes five years to get one made for no <laughs> money, you know, <laughs> you have the control, which is the only way I could do it. So I don't see myself making loads, but I definitely see myself as a filmmaker. Um, theater is something that's just quite easy to achieve. You know, you can get a play on, and even if no theater wants it, it's like in, they say in the music, hey, let's do the show right here. You can literally do a show. And I started off doing plays in rooms above bars. You know, you can do it. It's, it's achievable. Making a film, yes, it's achievable for no money, but very tricky, very hard, you know. So I see myself as ping-ponging back and forth. A hero of mine would be Neil Young, you know. Hmm. And whenever Neil Young releases an album, you don't know if it's going to be like a country album or like total grunge rock album. And I just think, well, yeah, it's like just go wherever you feel you need to go. Yeah, uh, I'm gonna. I want to ask you one thing, and then we will open it up and take questions from the audience. But you're, there's something very striking about the quality of your dialogue and your in your plays, um, just the kind of naturalism that that you achieve. Um, there's just a, a flavor to it. You seem to just have a a, a knack for for that. For um, you know, it's very vivid writing. There's a lot in it. There's a lot of personality in the writing, but it feels like real life and you somehow bring out the characters through the dialogue and I don't know I don't know if you can talk about where that came from I, I don't think you um, so how did you get how did you get into um, writing plays and, wh and where do you think this quality comes from I got into writing plays when I, I was always playing music uh, when I was a teenager playing in bands and that was all I really wanted to do and of course my parents were completely horrified because they were like <laughs> you're never gonna make a living you're just gonna be a, t a bum you know and um, I was like well god and they said you should go to university, go to college, because then you will have all the time in the world to play music, and if you, and you'll have a degree, and you know you can get a job if it doesn't work out. But when I went to college and I started reading, I st I decided to start studying philosophy because I thought you don't have to st study any books. You just what's that about? It's about nothing, you know. So I thought <laughs> anyway, and English because I thought okay, you read a few novels. How hard can that be? Fine. But of course, once <laughs> I got into it, it totally blew my mind and expanded my total you know, awareness of, of my own ignorance. And it was f great to be there. And I read a play by David Mamet called Glen Gary, Glen Ross. And when I read, when I saw the dialogue in that, which was so inarticulate and just full of swearing and ums and uhs and, you know, all that kind of stuff, I just thought, what's amazing about this is that he knows that the audience intuitively know what's going on. And he really respects their intelligence. So that even when characters are completely inarticulate, yeah. we know what's going on. And so I usually, sometimes, yes, I might launch into an aria in one of my plays where somebody gets to have a speech. But a lot of the time, I like it to be pretty inarticulate and let the audience just intuit the characters and let them know what's going on rather than have them come on and give a lot of they exposition. Kind of the audience can even be a little bit ahead of the characters. I mean, The Shining City opens with uh, you know, a scene where the two characters can barely get their thoughts out. Well, yeah. that's it, I mean, but also at the same time, the <laughs> balance is you've got to always try and stay ahead of the audience because, right. um, I forget who it was, was it one of those big Hollywood moguls that said, you know, on their own, the audience are imbeciles. Together, they're like a total genius <laughs> that it's impossible for you to surprise, you know, and to try and stay ahead of them is tough, but you have to stay ahead. Once the audience gets ahead of you, you are in big trouble. Yeah. So, you know, you've got to really be aware of that very laser-like attention that's on the work 
they get everything. They don't miss a trick, and that's <laughs> what you've got to be aware of. And mm -hmm. also to bury what you're trying to do, not make it obvious if you can. Yeah. Okay, well, um, do we have any questions? And I, okay, just wait for the microphone. And, um, Here in the ahead. front. Okay, go ahead. So is there something uh, special about working with Irish actors for you? Um, you know, you picked some of the best here and have in the past. And Yeah, I mean, well, being Irish and speaking the way I do, I can't help that when I'm writing dialogue, that's the rhythm, that's the music that I hear, that's the... If I hear a bum note, I'm hearing it in an Irish idiom, you know. And um, so, yeah, that I, I always set my work in my own country because that's what I know. And um, Irish actors just tend to get it very quickly, what, what, what I'm doing, where uh, perhaps if I was to do a film in America and write dialogue, people would go, there's something weird about this. It's just that people are talking funny, I don't know, but uh, not quite right, you know. So, yeah, I tend to keep it pretty homegrown. Okay, right back here. We have Go two ahead. in the second row. Okay. Thank you for being so generous and spending your time with us today. I wanted to ask you, regarding your rehearsal process for films versus theater, how do you approach it, if there's any differences? As an actor, I'd love to know. Yeah, well, again, like going back to Neil Young, you know, when Neil Young is recording an album, he won't even tell the band that they're taping you know, and he'll say, you know, they're going to rehearse the song. And once they've played it, he goes, that's it. We recorded it. Because what he wants is that strange, tentative, spooky, funny, even if there's mistakes. Um, and so th in films, often the first take can really have something. And if you don't shoot it, you don't shoot the... So often I would say to Kieran when we're filming and to the guys, I'd say, let's shoot the rehearsal. Mm. And often... That's what you use? It's just, it just has that, that funny electricity, you know? Um, and then if something goes badly wrong, take two, take three, take four, take five. I mean, usually in and around take two, three is where it's going to be optimum. You'll use bits from take one because it might be just something, even a mistake that just gives it real reality. Uh, and then it starts to, it's a law of diminishing returns for me. It starts getting worse and worse and worse. Directing for theater, it's the opposite. The more rehearsal, the better. The more that the, um, the actors are able to read each other's minds, get into those thoughts, and keep, the, keep the, the performance fresh every night by going to new places with it, digging deeper and deeper and deeper. You can never stop working on a play, even right to the last night. You need to keep, keep it alive, keep that energy alive, and be trying things all the time. So they're very different like that. I suppose the live experience has to have an electric chemistry that has to be pounding, pounding all the time so that even you earn those silences and pauses and like, you know, they really got to work. They can only work when the actors really know and trust each other. Sometimes actors on film, they might have only met that day and uh, they might be playing people, might be playing brothers, I don't know. But, um, and because of the nature of films, you just don't get a lot of time to rehearse. Sometimes on big movies, I'm sure they do, but it tends not to happen that way. And it's kind of ironic because films are there forever and they're not rehearsed. In plays, you rehearse for five or six weeks and they're mm. gone forever. So it's, um, it's kind of intriguing. But I love working with actors and it's actors who, sh who show me the work. It's only through working with them and what they know they can do that shows me what works and what doesn't work. I've, I've, I really value my relationship with actors. I just think, and I don't know how they do it. They're just extraordinary. I think it's kind of a, I would be terrified trying to do what they do. Hmm. 
Okay, sure. right. Go we ahead. We have another question here in the second one. Um, as a writer, you might get excited about a new idea, so your enthusiasm is like really high for the first 20 or 30 pages. How do you keep that excitement when the, um, when the um, enthusiasm has, has waned, and how do you keep writing like at page 60 or page 75? Don't go past page 60. Just keep, keep it all down in there. Keep it real short. I mean, film scripts, keep it down to the bone, I think, if you can. You know, um, it'll also give you the room when you, if you get to shoot it to improvise a bit more. You know? But um, writing is very hard. It's the hard it's, directing is easier than writing, I think, you know, because you're on your own writing. And like this, because when you're directing, you can see everything's in front of you, and you can come up with ideas really quickly. When you're sitting on your own, it's tricky, but what I, I don't write if I don't feel I can do it. Like, if I feel this is not happening, I'll walk away. I yeah. won't write for days. I, and then just allow it. That energy will gradually come back. And when you're doing something, I find anyway, for me, something totally different, I'm putting out the garbage. And I go, hey, that's <laughs> it. And then I'll, you know, go in and I suddenly have had this, this idea. So I think that thing of pounding, pounding, pounding at the... The work can sometimes be a bit counterproductive. I think you've got to give it space. Give yourself space. And the greatest asset you can give any project is time. That is the biggest investment you can have. The more time you have, the better. And that's why I think people should always take their time. And like, you know, when you've got a draft, then just leave it, you know. Leave it for a week or two. When you come back and read it, even if you're stuck at page 60, it speaks to you in a fresher way, and you suddenly see where, all, where it's terrible and what works. You know, sometimes if you're at it every day, every day, every day, every day, you don't see the wood for the trees, I find. You know? So those are just some tricks I would use, which is like, don't write, which is, I know it's a terrible trick, but <laughs> it's uh, perhaps a good one. All right, back here in the fourth row. Thank you. I, I just, before I forget, I love your plays. You've always been very inspiring. Uh, I'm an actor and a playwright. You know, I just... I just really, really have a lot of respect for the world you create and a lot of the plays I've seen. Um, I just wanted to ask you, um, you said there's a lot of, re you do rewriting and you pare down some of your writing in the films. And when you work on a play, um, I'm just trying to get a sense of how you work as a writer. Uh, when you work with your actors on uh, a play, do you rewrite? How often does it depend on the play? Yeah, I would tend not to do too many drafts on a play. You know, like two drafts go into rehearsal, you know what I mean? Or even have a little reading with some friends because you hear it, you know? And it's, it starts telling you very quickly what's, what's there. Um, yeah, like, also as well, when you're writing a play, I'm sure you find this with dialogue, a lot of time when you're writing dialogue, you're, you're listening to the dialogue. You're, you're writing down what you're, what you're hearing, and as you're writing that line, you've heard the next one, and then you hear the next one, and then you hear the next one. When you stop hearing it, then you, you're, you're, you're in trouble. And uh, <laughs> so that's, you know, so sometimes you get that lovely flow. You get four beautiful pages of dialogue that you go, whoa. And you may never touch again. It just goes, whoa. And then sometimes you're like, oh, man, this is terrible, you know. And so, but as an actor, I think you're lucky. You can read your work out loud, too, and just listen to how it sounds and all that. And you've obviously, I'm sure you've got friends who you re can read it with, you know. But the best stuff usually, if it flows just in that one go, that page probably won't ever change. But then in rehearsals, the great luxury of rehearsals is you've got all those weeks to just work on the play. And I think actors, I'm sure you find this, love working on a new play for precisely that reason. I mean, it's great to work on an established classic play because it's perfect. 
But working on a new play has that lovely, dirty, what's happening thing here, you know, which is uh, inspiring. So I would always, my advice would be, don't consider the play finished when you're going into rehearsals. It's just, you're probably, you know, you're nearly there and that's great, but just be open to what's going to happen and then steal all those ideas and don't give any credit to the actors. Okay. <laughs> just kidding. Great. We have a question here in the third row. Uh, you direct many of your own plays, but sometimes uh, you will direct a play that appears in London and someone else will direct it when it comes to New York. Uh, do you prefer to direct your own plays? And when you see your play directed by someone else, do you ever say, I could have done better? Well, the reason I direct my own plays is just what I was saying to this other gentleman. It's like, that's how I finish writing them. I need to go through that process to see if it works. And that keeps me really interested in it, obviously, because there's a deadline and it's like, whoa, we're going to have to do this. So we better get it right. And if you're a playwright working with a director, I have found that sometimes you go, you know what, we don't need this half page. It's so obvious what's happening. Let's just cut that. And the director... And I go, no, 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 wait, oh, we, we'll make that work, we'll make that work. <laughs> and you can find that you're there, I've found in the past, on the opening night going, this never worked, you know? But if you're directing it, it's gone in a second. It's gone. And, or you go, no, let's say this, let's do this. You can just do it really, really quick. I love that freedom. I need that freedom. I'm too panicky if I don't have that control. Then once I've done it once, I tend to lose interest in directing it again because I know that I'm going to have to, in a way, hear it completely differently with different actors. And probably, and I always do, if I've directed any play of mine more than once, I change the play because a certain actor is, you know, doing a, a certain thing in a different way. And I will write, mold it to their strength. I'll play to their strengths. So, um, so that's why then I, and then usually by the time I've directed one, I probably have an idea for something else. And if I just keep going directing, say I came to New York and just continued directing a play that I had directed in London, for instance, the energy that I had to write that other play is gone into directing an old play. And that's a horrible feeling because the play's gone. In, in, uh, I'm curious, in theater, you have a live audience to tell you wh whether something's working or not. So what do you do in film? I mean, how do you know when moments are working? Uh, you know, you're not, you can't rely on putting it in front of an audience until it's already finished. And you've got, say, in the eclipse, you've got some, you know, shocking moments and you, you have um, quiet moments. And how do you know that it's, it's working? To me, music, I suppose, is the art form that I would aspire to most, really. I'm a failed musician, essentially. And I think <laughs> that the rhythm of a story and the rhythm of a film or the rhythm of a play has to be almost musical. It's like intro, verse, verse, chorus, verse, chorus, middle eight, chorus, chorus, outro, okay? In a sense, that is like an arc of a story. And, you know, so I sort of work that way, really. It just feels right. The rhythm feels right. You know, you can't start with kind of like you're in the middle. You start <laughs> with the little gentle intro and then you sort of crank it up and then you bang into the drum solo and then you sort of finish it nice, quiet outro, you know? So I suppose for me, it's like music. That's, how I, that's the only way I can do it. But also then when you're watching something on stage, the audience are telling you. You just know. I think that when an audience are watching a play, they're bound by a kind of amazing telepathy. And we all laugh at the same moment. Not necessarily sometimes at funny things, but just at things that we just find 
find, I don't know, and we laugh together as a group. It's, an, it's a beautiful moment when that happens and that will tell you what's happening. And also the actors, of course, are completely aware of that and then they can start playing to that and with that and against that sometimes too. They're like, hey, no, I don't want to laugh here. I'll play against that or let's get that laugh and then let's kill it <laughs> or here's a, here's a laugh and you know what? You think that's a laugh? We top it again, bang, with a bigger one that they didn't see coming. To me, it's all like music. So what do you like in the editing room for film? You know, where that's where, that's where you can control that those moments and how the rhythm works. So what, you know, what is that process like for you? Well, I would be again. I'm always very tough on my work. You know, I would be. I mean, like with directors fighting to keep things in the play, editors will be fighting to keep things in. And I'm like, listen, we don't need that. We don't need that. Let's get to the chorus. We got to yeah. get to the to the catchy <laughs> tune that we like here. You know, and rather than this meandering yeah. guitar solo. <laughs> you know. Okay. Uh, there's a question right here. Wait, just uh, wait, wait for the microphone. Given your background in theater, as a director of film, do you prefer actors with a theater background or do you prefer something different in terms of their history and the type of roles they've performed in the past? Well, that's a very interesting question because acting on film and acting in the theater are very, very different. Um, Theatre acting has to really hit that back wall. It's got to be, it's got to be perceptible from a long way off. On film, as I said before, the camera can practically read your mind. A very experienced film actors just really know. They always know where the camera is, and they know how they look on camera. Sometimes actors who have done a lot of theatre, you will find their performances are whoa. Let's just. Turn that down just a little bit because it's whoa, that is too big, you know. And uh, you just got to get into that into that rhythm. And sometimes you get an actor who's coming off a play in a film, and it's it's a it's a pre whoa, that performance is just too much. And then sometimes I've worked then with actors who haven't done a play in ten years. They've been doing a lot of film, and they're doing the rehearsal, and they're fine. Hey, this is great! All this rehearsal is fantastic. I love this. Why don't I do more theater? And then they get so nervous as they get into the dress rehearsal, and oh my. God, and then they get to the first preview, and they're going, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God, and then how, they, how am I going to get through this first preview? Then they get through the first preview, and they're utterly drained and exhausted. Not only do they have to do it again tomorrow night, which is absolutely shattering for them, they have to do it for the next, you know, two months, which they're going, what have I got myself into? Then they get through that, and the play opens, and then they're like, hey, I can, I can do this, but you've got to be there really supporting them, you know, they are very different disciplines. I mean, ultimately, that acting talent is there. It's the same talent, but very different technique. And um, I used to think when I was younger, you know, training. Actors don't need training. If you have it, you, you have it, you know. As I've grown older and seen it, especially for theater, people who train, look after their bodies, look after their voices, will always stand to them. Because sometimes you get actors who haven't done theater for a long time. They are just shattered after a couple of nights psychologically and physically and um, so that training is kind of important maybe people don't need it so much for film and there are people who have just started on huge film careers with very little experience and that's fine because they do it in little chunks and that's okay and then they decide to do a play and it's a whole other thing mm. you know okay uh, right over here and just uh, again wait for the microphone hi You've used the uh, the great Irish actor uh, Jim Norton in a number of one of your uh, plays. Um, he just seems like such a natural. 
and it doesn't seem like there's any, in, as with the best actors, there doesn't seem to be any acting involved. Uh, what is it like working with such a, a great actor of his caliber? It's like driving an amazing sports car. You just, it always responds, you know, and no matter what you do, it responds, you know, and like a lot of good actors, it's never bad, even when it's wrong. It's kind of, you know, there's something about that that's kind of right, you know, it's, uh, it's always something there. But Jim just, he is an amazing example to younger actors, especially for the theatre, in a sense that he does see his, his body and his voice as an instrument, and he really looks after it. Jim is 70, he jogs, he runs, he eats well. After the show, he won't be in the bar knocking back the whiskeys. He's home for his pasta, which is, you know, he's got ready and he looks after himself. Very, very disciplined like that. And so he makes it look very easy, but there's an enormous amount of preparation in Jim's work. And you should see his script. It's like, it's like a tattered piece of tissue paper by the end of rehearsals, huh. just from notes and tearing it out and writing things in. Mm. So it's... Um, like all the great ones, he makes it look easy, but he works incredibly hard. And he's blessed, of course, with that incredible voice, which playwrights, we love actors with loud voices more than anything. You know, that lovely voice, boom, you, everybody hears it. It's fantastic, you know. Um, Jim's a pleasure to work with. I've done about six plays with Jim, and I don't know that my work would have been as well received as it has been without Jim. And I certainly owe him a lot. He's amazing. Okay, just um, two quick things. I want to give you a chance to say something about the music on the Eclipse. It's really a beautiful job, and I believe the composer is here. Well, <laughs> the music for the Eclipse was composed by my wife, Fanula, um, for a number of reasons. One is that we play, we play music together at home. We both played in bands all through our teens and stuff, and uh, I've worked with composers before on other projects and stuff, but we had very little money and so forth. And also, <laughs> we thought, well, look, let's have a go at doing this ourselves, and we, um, we were at this function one night where we suddenly heard all this beautiful singing and a choir came down the stairs and stood on the stairs and sang and Fanula just said to me, choral music could be absolutely amazing in a film, you know, like this. And I was thinking of films like The Deer Hunter, which uses choral music. And uh, so we decided to go for that. And it just went, it, it was an awful lot of work. And we had an amazing choir that we worked with called the Mornington Singers. And... Um, it just lifts the whole thing into another realm. And yeah. uh, so I'm very, very pleased with how it turned out. And then I, I know the response was great at the first screenings, but I wanted to just ask you what it was like having big screenings in front of a New York audience and it's a world premiere of the film. What, was, like, what did you sort of learn about the film or what surprised you maybe about watching this with a uh, live audience? I was not, not shocked, or, but very gratified that the response to it was very personal, you know, like we had a little Q&A afterwards and everyone started talking about things that had happened to them in their lives and stuff. And it was a very personal, emotional response from the audience. But I have always found that New York audiences are incredible audiences. They come to something wanting it to be good, believing that it can be, which sometimes in Ireland they come kind of, what's this? You know, um, I have found, and we're, we're, I, the famous Irish begrudgery is always there too, that it's kind of tough. They're tough audience. New York audiences as well, they see an awful lot of very different things. So in a sense, they're quite fit. They're, they'll go <laughs> with anything, going anywhere. It doesn't matter, because they've just seen something the previous night that was like crazy, you know. So they see a lot of, you know, world-class stuff. So they're very, very, I don't know, they're just probably 
I have done an awful lot of my work here in New York and I've been so grateful for it down the years because it's always been so, those audiences have just so, so gratifying, so active, so they want it and I, I, they couldn't be better. Yeah. And it's such a basic, I mean, the film um, is, is just so basic in terms of what it's dealing about. It's, it's really about, it's a love triangle, but it's really about what love means to these characters and, and how it fits into their lives. So I could, I'm not surprised that it got that kind of response. Yeah, like, I mean, well, I suppose everybody, ultimately, we're all the same. And the great thing is that the plays that I've done here before, they're all set in little areas in Dublin, you know. They're not... I'd, you know, it's, it was always such a shock to me how people here <laughs> related to those characters who seem, you know, culturally very different. But it really showed me that, you know, as human beings, ultimately, yeah. our experience of the world is the same. And so it was a, it's been an amazing education for me and it's given me a tremendous amount of confidence coming to a place like New York and being accepted and being told and that you're, le you're legitimate. You are a writer, you're a director, and that's, we like your plays. And that's, that means everything to a writer. Okay, well, thanks so much. I have a feeling you're going to be back at this film festival in the future. So, um, thank you very much. Luck, but good thank luck you. with this one. Thanks. We want to thank uh, both Connor and Dave for coming out and for you as well. You've been a great audience. Uh, we've got many more exciting events coming up this week. So visit our store's website at apple.com slash Soho to find out what's happening. Thank you.